As the bulletin indicates, I'm reading the first 11 verses of Exodus 20. Some of you are familiar with the setting, some of you may not be. In the preceding chapter, we learn that Israel, as it made its way out of the wilderness from Egypt, came to a mountain called Sinai, and there they made their camp. And as the event recorded in our text approached, frightening things began to happen on and around the mountain. There were thick clouds that descended upon it. There were lightnings, there were thunders, the earth shook. There was a long wail of a trumpet that went on and on and on. And the people understood that this meant that God, the God who had called them to himself, the God who had set them free from their Egyptian bondage was on that mountain and they were afraid of God. But Moses went up onto the mountain And beginning in the 20th chapter, we read, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers upon children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor the stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The text begins, and God spoke all these words. The foundation and the heart of our Christian faith is the idea that God has spoken. The ideas that we hold as Christians about the universe in which we live and the history through which we pass our beliefs about our own nature and about the character of God, the principles that guide and control our behavior, the knowledge of salvation that causes our consciences to burn within us, that convinces us of the mercy of God and assures us of a sweet and glorious life beyond the grave. All these things more and more are held firmly by Christian people, not because they resonate with our common sense, not because they represent a consensus of the thoughts of the wisest of men through history, but because of our confidence that God has spoken. God has spoken. And we are foolish beyond description if we fail to give our full attention to what God has said. For apart from his word, we know little about God, little about ourselves, nothing about the life to which he calls us, nothing about his provision for us, and we live from day to day stumbling in a darkness that will have no end. 
if we fail to give our attention to what God has said. In fact, a part of what God has said is the declaration of his expectation that all who truly love him will also love his word and his promise that our efforts to understand and obey his word will result in his blessings to us. In Exodus 20, the words that God is about to speak are a part of his law that we know commonly as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments together is not the totality of that law. It is not even fair to describe it as a summary of that law, but it is a vitally important part of that law. Ten very specific statutes that at the same time are ten great principles of holy living, each capable of expression beyond its most obvious meaning. Eight of these Ten Commandments are expressed in the negative as prohibitions. Two are positive exhortations. They are the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and your mother. And the Fourth Commandment, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. My message on this Labor Day is based on this Fourth Commandment. As Bible-believing Christians, we have problems with the Old Testament law. And one of the problems that many of us as Bible-believing, evangelical, Protestant Christians have with the Old Testament law is nothing other than our general ignorance of it. In the wider evangelical church, and perhaps even here, it is commonly believed that the law of Moses is virtually irrelevant to the Christian believer. Many of us carry in our pockets or our lunch boxes or our purses New Testaments. Some of us have New Testaments that are augmented with Psalms and perhaps even Proverbs from the Old Testament, but we do not carry the whole Bible. And of course, this does not make us Bible-believing Christians. This makes us New Testament-believing Christians, if we're very honest with ourselves. Again and again, we will hear important discussions of weighty matters of Christian theology in which someone will quote from Leviticus or Isaiah, and someone else in the discussion will respond by saying, well, that's the Old Testament, as if that contributes nothing to the advance of our understanding of the issue that we're discussing. The result of this attitude is that the average Christian is virtually illiterate with respect to everything written before Matthew. It's interesting in that regard to notice that nowhere does the New Testament justify our willful ignorance of the Old Testament. And in fact, the careful student of the New Testament is increasingly impressed by the width of the knowledge and the breadth of the understanding of the authors of the New Testament of all of the content of the Old Testament. The most obvious examples of this are the quotations of the Old Testament we find in the New Testament, identified with quotation marks or a different style of printing. But what is not nearly so obvious, but becomes plain to us as we become more familiar with the Old Testament, are the very subtle references to its promises and its principles that flow through the writing of the inspired authors of the New Testament. I remind you that the Old Testament, including its law, is as much the Word of God as the New Testament. 
And for us to treat the Old Testament as irrelevant and ignore it in our reading and our studying is, in effect, to say to God, I'm not interested in everything that you have had to say, only this part, and we draw his attention to the newer of the two covenants. And we do this to our hurt, because there is much of the New Testament that we cannot understand without a working knowledge of the Old Testament. The wise believer will spend as much time in the Old Testament as he spends in the New, in his habit of reading the Word of God and his discipline of contemplating that Word. But for those of us who do appreciate the relevance of the Old Testament, and particularly its law, there's another problem that comes to us, and that is found in the question, how much of this law applies to me as a Christian believer? The question is prompted by the plain fact that it's clear that some parts of the Old Testament law do not apply to us. An excellent example of this is the dietary law. In the 11th chapter of Leviticus in the Old Testament, we find a long list of animals that God's people were not to eat. But we come into the New Testament. We find Peter's vision in Acts 10. We find the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 4. And it's obvious to us that for reasons of his own, probably beyond the reach of our understanding, God has abrogated that part of his law, and the dietary law no longer applies to us as Christians, although it was binding upon Moses and those who received the law from his hand. Paul said that nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. So we have this example, one among several, of parts of the Old Testament law that clearly are not binding upon us as Christians, but then we find other examples of parts of that law that clearly are binding. For example, murder is still wrong in the eyes of God. Adultery and fornication continue to be forbidden by God. Stealing and dishonoring our parents are still wrong. We know these things not because they make sense to us, not because the vast majority of religious thinkers agree, but because God has said so. The key to knowing whether parts of the Old Testament law are still binding on us is discovering what the New Testament has to say about those parts of the Old Testament law under consideration. The sins that I just mentioned, all of which are barred by the law, are each repeated in the writings of the New Testament. There are three ways to resolve this problem that we have with wondering how much of the Old Testament law still applies to us. Two of them are easy. The third is not nearly so. The first easy step is to consider all of the Old Testament law as irrelevant. We need know nothing about it. It is of academic and historic interest to us as Christians only and nothing more than that. The second way of dealing with this, and taken by some Christians, is to assume that all of the law still applies to us. These are people who worship on Saturdays, for example, and won't eat pork. But the hard way of dealing with this is to study the Bible carefully, struggling to rightly divide the Word of God with the understanding that parts of this law do apply, parts of this law do not apply. And it is a matter of great importance to me as a conscientious Christian to know which, because I need to know what God requires of me. 
If you were to do this carefully with respect to the Sabbath law, I believe that you might come to agree with me that contrary to the claims of the Westminster Confession, the Sabbath law is one of those parts of the Old Testament law that are no longer binding on the minds and the consciences of Christians. There's more than one reason for saying this. One is that in the history of the New Testament, there's no record of Sabbath keeping by any Christian that is described in a way that indicates that it is anything but a loving condescension to the convictions and the practices of other people. There is no instruction in the New Testament that Christians are to keep the Old Testament law. And the only references that we find in the New Testament to the regular gatherings of Christians refer not to the seventh day of the week, but to the first day of the week. The Christians did not gather on Saturday. They gathered on Sunday, as we do today, probably celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But all of this put together becomes convincing evidences to me that this fourth commandment, And of the ten, this fourth commandment alone is no longer binding us as Christians. But it does contain important principles about the will of God that are important for us to understand. One of these is that the God who spoke on Sinai expects to have influence in our decisions about the use of time. This commandment is about labor. But please notice it is also about time. There were seven days in the Hebrew week, and here God declares his will regarding the use of those days by his people. He lays claim to each of those days, and he says, from Sunday to Friday you will engage in your labor, but on Saturday I want you to set that labor aside and rest from it. It's important for us to remember that the word holy that is used here does not always have a religious connotation. It means to set something aside for special use. It is very much like the New Testament word sanctification or sanctified. Now, we might argue, as indeed many Christians are inclined to do, about the precise nature of the activities that are forbidden or permitted by this commandment. We might ask, is it to be a day of complete rest in which we do absolutely nothing or are fun things and recreation allowed by this Old Testament law? But to do that, in my opinion, would distract us from what I believe to be the larger issue, and that is our view and our use of time. Here, the God who appointed the instant of our conception and the hour of our birth the one who assigned the days of our lives before one of them came to be and presides over those days as Lord, our Creator, our Savior, our Lord says to us, I expect your use of time to be governed by your knowledge of my will and your sense of my leading. We are naturally inclined to view our time as our time. The greatest question that we face is, how much of my time should I give to the Lord? Assuming that the rest of our time is ours to do as we please, it not being necessary to consult God about decisions that we make in the use of the time. We commonly say to one another after church, that is, at the end of the time that I have generously set aside for God, 
we're going to Bob Evans for lunch, or I'm going home to mow my lawn, or we're going shopping, or this or that. And each of these statements represents decisions that we have made regarding the use of time that specifically or in general we have not sought the Lord's direction regarding. It's my time. I will use it as I please, except for that one hour or that two hours that I have given over to the Lord on the morning of the Lord's Day. James deals with this independent spirit, this particular view of life and its resources in the fourth chapter of the New Testament book that bears his name, where he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or do that, James says. We call Jesus Lord. An interesting question for me to answer for myself, for you to answer for yourself, is what do I mean when I call Jesus Lord? That is not his name. That is his title. Does that title have significance in my life? Too often we make decisions about the use of the days that Christ has assigned to us without seeking his will or his direction. One of the principles found in the Sabbath law is that God expects to be a part of our plans for the use of time. A second of these has to do with the need for balance in our lives. Words spoken by our creator, our designer, the one who knows more about us and our needs than we know about ourselves. God said to the farmers and to the craftsmen among his people long ago, six days you will tend your herds and ply your trades. But the seventh day I expect you to rest from your labors and do other things, to talk and to play with your children, to renew your relationship with your wife, to take a nap, to take a walk, to visit with your family and your neighbors. God said, I want there to be a wholesome balance in your lives. We've all known over the years people who worked in one of Flint's factories. People who worked as often as they possibly could, sometimes as often as seven days a week. It was said of them that they loved their work, they were called committed, they were called dedicated. With time and a half for overtime and double time for summer Sundays, their coffers were full and they were able to provide good clothing excellent medical and dental care, and the finest of educations for children that they hardly knew. This was a man or a woman who didn't know or chose not to heed the commandment of our God. On the other hand, we've also known men and women who would rather play than work. They'll skip work to go hunting or fishing. At work, they'll be on the computer or telephone distracted by matters totally unrelated to their labor. They act as if they've never heard an honest day's work for a day's pay and both flaunt the requirements and miss the blessings of this commandment of our God. God says, I want you to give yourselves wholeheartedly, energetically to your labor for six days, 
But on the seventh day, I want you to set that labor aside and give your attention to other privileges and responsibilities in life. Whether or not you agree that the Sabbath law itself is no longer legally binding on us as Christians, you have to agree that it contains valuable principles about balance in life that we ignore to our own hurt and possibly to the hurt of those who live with us. Finally, this commandment relates to labor. That is very plain. Most of our discussions focus on the seventh day and its use and what is allowed and what is not allowed by God. Very little is said about the rest of this law in which God said, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Notice that the law of the God that we have gathered to worship and whom we call Lord mandates a six day work week. As a rule, we don't work six days in America. We once did when the Bible was more widely known and held with higher respect than it is today. But in the last century or so, there have been movements in our country that said, among other things, that it is unfair to require people to do what God requires us to do. There is a condition of the human heart that causes us to rebel openly against the holy God who created us. Moses was on the mountain receiving a law from God that said, you have no other gods before me. And in the valley at the base of the mountain, the people were begging Aaron to take their gold and make a deity that they might worship there. The second Psalm describes the rebellion of unredeemed human nature against the rule of God. And it's not hard to see the movements that succeeded in reducing the work week as an expression of that rebellion. God says, six days you will labor, and many in our country say, that is unacceptable to us. I may be wrong in this perception. Some of you are possibly eager to tell me that you think I'm wrong in that perception. And there are many in our community who would. But it's difficult to imagine how God could have spoken more clearly than he spoke when he said six days, not five days, not four days, but six days you will work and do all of your labor. In this we find another example of an issue about which some have been taught to believe certain things all of their lives and then have brought to their attention a passage of scripture that calls into question some salient aspect of a lifelong tradition. And we have to ask, what will a conscientious Christian do when he finds himself in such a dilemma? And if you are a conscientious Christian, this kind of thing represents a dilemma to you. Does he cling to his tradition and assign lesser value to the Bible? Or does he realize that the apparent contradiction between something long believed and the word of God now requires him to examine both very, very carefully? This commandment reminds us that God expects to be consulted about and honored in our labor. In the scriptures, we find many passages that indicate to us God's interest in our labor. In that interval between his 
creation and the fall, Adam was given work to do by the Lord. He was to tend the garden. And in that provision of God for his human creation, we learn something important about ourselves, that labor plays a role in life. That our efforts to be done with labor, to shorten labor, to make labor easier, may not be fitting with our own best interests, according to the commandments and the creation of God. Adam was not created as a man of leisure. He was created to labor and given an assignment by God. And after the fall, one of the consequences of sin was not labor, but difficulty in labor. God said to Adam, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Adam complained about his labor after the fall. He sought ways to avoid his labor. He had many of the attitudes that mark our attitude toward labor today, but not because labor itself is wrong, but because something had changed drastically in his own heart. God sent his son to be born in the home of a godly but poor working man. And many of the Lord's parables featured labor-related people and circumstances. For example, there was the one about a farmer who went into town three or four times during a day to hire laborers to work in his field. You remember that? At the end of the day, he paid them all the same, no matter how long they'd been working. A labor-related parable. Jesus makes a statement about its importance. Another parable of the Lord featured two sons. The father made it very plain that he expected their labor on a certain day. The one son promised to do it, but then went back on his word and disappeared. The other son refused to do it and then relented, changed his mind, and went out and did exactly what his father wanted him to do. Jesus told stories about a housewife laboring in her kitchen, about fishermen working over their nets, about a shepherd tending his flock. The 33rd proverb is about a woman that is called blessed, who rises early in the morning and works late into the evening, managing her household and overseeing much of her husband's estate. Leviticus 13 warns us against taking advantage of the working poor. And this commandment, the fourth, assigns a value and a schedule to labor. God has expressed an interest in our labor and expects to be honored in our conduct. God should be honored in our selection of labor in the first place. Often we ask a young person, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are you going to major in in college? What are your plans for the future? A conscientious Christian young person will say, I've been praying about that. I've been seeking God's direction for my life. Right now, I think I'd like to be a carpenter or a pilot or a doctor or an engineer, but I don't have clear direction from God yet, and I'm not going to make a decision until I have that. God should be honored in the choices that we make about labor. God should be honored in our attitude toward our labor, our sinful nature, our native egotism makes it natural for us to complain about our labor. We complain about our hours, 
about our working conditions, about our supervision, about our pay and benefits, about our co-workers. This is all natural according to the flesh. But our faith requires us to be appreciative, positive, helpful, and strive to be a light shining in the darkness. You who are working parents, how do your children hear you talk about your work? Do they hear you talk about your work as if you're thankful for your job? Thankful for the opportunities the difficult working conditions might give you to share your faith with others? Or do they hear other things from your lips? God should be honored in the way that we deal with difficulties at work. How we deal with the unfairness of supervision and circumstances. How we deal with the filthy speech and the dirty humor of co-workers. How we deal with our own mistakes and blunders. All of this reveals much about our Christian character. In the second chapter of his first epistle, Paul says this. He's addressing his words to servants. These words apply to all people who labor and are under supervision. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief suffering wrongfully. God is not honored by our hostility. God is not honored by our rushing to file complaints or lawsuits. But God is honored if we respond to the injustices of life as Christ responded to far greater injustice as he was dying for our sins and our salvation. The fourth commandment may or may not apply to us as Christians in a legally binding fashion. But whether or not it relates to us in that way, it contains important principles that we need to be aware of and to think about carefully, particularly those of us who labor. It speaks to us about God's right to rule our decisions about the use of time. It speaks to us about the importance of balance in the activities of life. It speaks to us about God's fair expectation to be honored in our labor. To all who love God, to all who strive above all else to live lives that are pleasing and useful to him, the scriptures say, and I repeat these words from 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, in our national calendar, we've come to a holiday that draws our attention to labor, to labor as an abstract subject, to labor as a practical reality in many of our lives, and we're grateful for that. We pray that the result of our being here today will be a personal insistence in each of our minds to see life, not as those around us see it, but as you see it, that we might leave this place in our work and in our play and in the lives of our families and everything that comprises our life to honor you above all else. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.